name is Ryan Diaz, and I'm the pastoral resident here at Hope Brooklyn, and I'm excited because now at this point in the service is where we get to dive into the word of God. We are firm believers that whenever we open up the scriptures, God is present and speaking to us. And so I would encourage all of you just to take a moment to focus, take a moment to ready your heart because we're about to hear from God's word. God is about to speak to us and hopefully God is about to shock us. God is about to reveal himself to us and God through his son Jesus by the power of the spirit is going to meet us today through his word. But I have a word of warning. See, there's a temptation when we approach the scriptures. There's a temptation when we approach this thing we call the Bible. There is a temptation to hear it, but not listen. There's a difference between hearing and listening. I can hear you talking, but I may not be listening. And there is a a warning to be had here as we go into what may be for some of you a familiar passage of scripture to hear what God is saying but not be listening. See, where we deal sometimes in our 21st century Western arrogance, we deal sometimes with the issue that we assume already we know what the text is saying. And so I don't know for you, like me, you've maybe some of you, you've been around church a while, and so you'll hear a passage of scripture and you'll gloss over it because you want to get to the good stuff, the stuff you don't know about yet. And yet, by just glossing over a text you think is familiar, you might actually be missing out on something God is trying to say. You know, we also make the mistake sometimes of reading into the text our context. This is called anachronism, where we read into the text what we feel, think, and see, rather than letting the text read into us what God is trying to say. And so what we end up doing is we import a context onto the Bible that's not relevant to the Bible and miss out what God is trying to say. Context is everything when reading the scriptures. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Queens, Queens Village to be exact. And I can tell you that growing up as a New Yorker, context is everything. See, when a New Yorker tells you this phrase, and maybe some of you, you're from New York, so you know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you, you're like, I just moved here, so I'm about to let you in on some game, okay? See, when, when you're in New York, someone can tell, ask you a question. And depending on the context, this question means a ton of different things. See, I could walk up to you on the train and be like, yo, you good? Now, depending on if you just bumped me on the shoulder, this could be a threatening question. Yo, you good? Depending if I see you maybe asking for some money, I might be saying, yo, you good? Like, you need something? Can I, can I help you out? Or maybe I just want to be left alone on the subway. And you keep trying to talking to me and telling me about your life story. And I could say, you're good. You're good. In other words, stop talking. The same phrase, completely different depending on the context. And today, we're going to read a familiar passage of scripture that if we don't get the context right, we're going to miss out on its implications. So with that said, if you have your Bible, whether you're at home or you're just scrolling through your phone, you got a physical Bible, whatever you got, open it up to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. It says this, Now after John was arrested... Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent 
and believe in the good news. Context. We open up this passage, St. Mark, he's telling us, hey, listen, John has finished his ministry and it's been finished because he's been thrown in prison. And John's job was to be a prophet preparing the way for the Messiah. And so now we're noticing a transition where John, he's prepared the way and now the Messiah Jesus is on the scene. And now John, his ministry is done. Jesus has just begun and now something new is happening for the people of God living in first century Palestine. And Jesus is going around his home region of Galilee and he's saying, hey, listen, guys, I have some good news. God's kingdom is here. The time is fulfilled. There's a response now. You guys need to repent and believe. Now, if I'm a first century Jew living in Roman-occupied Palestine, then though the sermon of Jesus may be short, for me, if I'm a first century Jew, it's loaded with meaning that might be lost on us. See, today we're going to try to figure out what does Jesus mean by believe in the gospel or believe in the good news? What is, what is Jesus trying to get at? And maybe some of us, you've grown up in churches, so you're like raising your hand like, me, 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 pick me, I got the answer. I know what it means to believe. And I'll say, hold on, hold the answer. Let's not rush to conclusions. Let's hear what Jesus is saying by understanding the context in which he's saying it. See, when Jesus is saying, going around, saying, I'm proclaiming the good news of God, when he's saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven has come here, near, repent and believe the gospel, Jesus is speaking as one who has an entire story in his mind. See, for the first century Jew, when they heard these words, what they're hearing is the culmination of the prophetic hope of Israel. And what they're hearing is that the time they've been waiting for, the anticipated time foretold by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these men and women who were prophesying of a day where God's kingdom was going to come in its fullness. Well, that time was now arriving, and Jesus is its herald. Jesus is going around making a royal proclamation that God's kingdom, his rule and his reign was drawing near, that the time for exile is over, the time for liberation is at hand, and guess what? It meant that there was a response required of the people. See, the good news of God is about Yahweh, the God of Israel's proximity and his authority. God was coming near, bringing with him his authority, not just over Israel, but over the whole world. And so when the Jews are hearing this, they're hearing something that we quite miss, that this gospel Jesus is proclaiming is a royal announcement. It's akin to a political slogan. He's saying, hey, listen, there's a new ruler in town. There's a new Lord on the scene, and it's going to require repentance and belief on your behalf. See, when they heard the word repent, they knew what Jesus meant. They heard that they had been unfaithful a bit. They heard that they hadn't stuck to the Torah. They, they heard that there was some confession that needed to happen. But what did they hear when Jesus said and called them to believe in the good news? 
See, I believe that Jesus is still among us by his spirit, calling us to repent and believe his good news, the good news about God. And that good news is still the same, that God has drawn near and that his authority and rule and reign has been established and a response is required on our part. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe in the gospel? Well, before we unpack what it means to believe and what first century Jews might have heard and what the implications are for us on this side of the 21st century, I think it's helpful for us to unpack what belief isn't. See, we have a lot of modern notions of what belief is. And so Matthew Bates, a New Testament scholar, does a great job of unpacking five things belief isn't. Number one, belief is not the opposite of evidence. That's a very common notion that belief is simply the opposite of evidence and observable facts. Number two, belief is not a leap in the dark. Number three, belief is not the opposite of works. Number four, belief is not, it's an all-good attitude. In other words, belief is an optimism. And number five, belief is not reducible to intellectual assent. Now, there's two of those statements that Matthew Bates makes that I want to focus in on. Number one, I want to focus in on what he means by belief is not the opposite of good works. Because if any of us listening to this are good Protestants, that made us shudder a little bit. That got us a little nervous. Like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Wait, hold on. Sola fide, right? Faith alone. I'm saved by faith alone. Ryan, how can you tell me faith is not the opposite of works? And, And I would like to affirm that, that we are saved indeed by faith, by faith alone, that there's nothing we can do to merit or earn salvation. And yet, when that concept is abstracted out of its context, what we end up thinking faith is, is this ethereal, internal disposition towards God. That there's nothing required of me, there's nothing I do, and so it really just ends up as a heart disposition, something I feel on the inside, and belief becomes for us simply akin to an emotion. Something that we can feel, but something we don't want to take a lot of credit for, and certainly not anything that's going to require anything of us. I also want to take a time to note what he means by Belief is not reducible to intellectual assent. What's intellectual assent? Well, intellectual assent is, in other words, knowing something to be true. You arrive, you ascend to the conclusion that something is true. And for many of us, belief tends to be all mental for us. We think belief, we think belief specifically in Christianity is believing the right things about God up here. And so what happens is when we hear the word believe in the gospel, we hear I need to check off a set of doctrinal boxes. Now, we do need to check off some sets of doctrinal boxes. It's important we're all believing in the right Jesus, not a Jesus of our own design. And yet if belief were to stop there in the first century, it wouldn't be belief at all. See, in the first century, belief is not just about something that happens internally in the heart nor it's just something that happens in the mind. It may start in those places, but it certainly can't end there. See, belief has these connotations, 
has this sense to the word that it has something to do more with allegiance. That to believe in the gospel is not, something, not simply to know the right things about God or to feel a certain way towards the message of the gospel, but actually it's a response in which we bend the knee. If this is a royal proclamation, then certainly the appropriate response would be to give our allegiance. When a new king would conquer a territory, the first thing he would ask the subjects whom he conquered were, are you going to follow me? And in this message, in Jesus' proclamation, what he's saying is, when he's saying believe in the gospel, he's asking for their allegiance. If you're like, hey, Ryan, I want some proof. What do you mean by this? Well, the word group that's a part of the word belief in the New Testament, one of its definitions is fidelity or faithfulness. In other words, allegiance. If you want another example, Josephus, a, a Jewish writer in the first century, when he's writing to someone in a letter, he tells this person, hey, I need you to repent and believe in me. What is he asking? He's asking this person to turn from the people he's serving and to give his allegiance to Josephus. Belief in the ancient world is embodied. It doesn't just happen in the mind. It doesn't just happen in the heart. It's the response of the whole life. And in this context, it means Jesus is the king arriving on his throne and he's calling people who are going to enter into his kingdom as his loyal subjects. In other words, when Jesus is saying repent and believe, he's saying turn from your disloyalty and give me your loyalty. Give me your allegiance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. Because Jesus is Christ, he has the authority to call and to demand obedience to his word. Jesus summons men to follow him, not as a teacher or a pattern of the good life, but as the Christ, the son of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is making a point here that Christ's calling of us is not simply a calling for us to know the right things about him. It's not simply for us to feel a certain way for, towards him, but it's actually a call that demands obedience. Will we give our whole lives, our whole selves, every fabric and fiber of our being over to him in allegiance? In other words, as James puts it, faith without works is dead. We can't just know the right things about God. We can't just feel a certain way towards him. We must respond with what I would call believing allegiance, trusting obedience. In other words, belief and obedience for many of us are, are two ends of a spectrum, where actually they're two sides of the same coin. Because as Bonhoeffer goes on to say, he says, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. For Bonhoeffer, for Jesus in this moment preaching to these people, what I know and what I feel is directly connected to what I do with my life. And today, Christ is among us as a community saying, my kingdom is here, my rule and reign has arrived. Will you believe in me? Not will you think the right things about me, though that's important, not that you have a certain internal disposition towards me, though that counts. But will your whole life be reflective of loyalty 
to me, my good news, my gospel, my rule and reign. Some of us, we're shaking down our boots a little bit. To be honest, whenever I think of this topic, whenever I read such quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I, I get a little nervous because when I think about my life and I think about my journey with Jesus, there has been many times where I haven't been loyal. There's been a lot of times where I haven't demonstrated allegiance. And I think for many of us, that's how we feel. Some of us right now, we're, we're, we're maybe beginning to feel that awkward sensation that maybe all my relationship with Christ is up here. And maybe some of us are getting that sinking feeling that all I really have is a, a disposition towards Christ. I like him. I think he's awesome. I love his speeches about love and kindness and loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. But I haven't really acted upon it. I haven't given my allegiance. And to be honest, this type of allegiance is hard. Because... Jesus is not the only Lord in the world begging for our allegiance. There are other lords and other masters calling us to bend the knee to them. We can summarize them as the world, the powers, and the flesh. See, the world, the current cultural climate of our day is a Lord calling to us. And specific for us in the 21st century, in the West, in America, the highest ideals of our culture are individual freedom. We are a culture that is in a war against hegemonic powers, that is raging for the liberation so that we can be self-actualized and be everything we want to be. That is our highest ideal here in the West. That is what we believe is gospel. Me, my freedom, what I want to be, what I want to do, who I want to fill in the blank. And it's important to note that when we hear that believing in Jesus is not just about here, it's not just about here, but it's actually about bending to knee and giving him my entire life, then all of a sudden the gospel we thought was cute and nice now becomes offensive. Because now the gospel comes against everything I thought was my highest good, what I thought was the highest ideal, which is my liberation and freedom. And now a king, for many of us in this moment, is Jesus, a tyrant, coming in to tell me how to live my life. And we're offended at the thought that Jesus might require more of me, maybe even my entire life. Then we have the powers. The powers are those spiritual demonic forces that we read about in Ephesians 6. These dark spiritual powers that exercise their rule and reign over us. The powers of money, sex, and power are lords that vie for our attention. They make great servants, but terrible masters. And so when we look at these things, these things like money, sex, and power, when we give our allegiance to them, we think we're being liberated. We think we're being free. But like the psalmist says, we become like the idols we worship, dumb, deaf, and blind, ceasing to be human at all. And so while we think we're bound, bending to knee to those who can give us our liberation, they're actually chaining us in gilded cages of our own design. And lastly, the flesh. The flesh is the inner man, the thing that connects us to the first Adam and that original sin. And what was that original sin? 
That original sin was the lie that we can be our own rulers, that we can be God. And so we still have that aspect, that part of us deep within us that is vying to be God. Not to be the image of God, but to be God, capital G. To rule and reign for us to determine what's good and evil. And every time we hear about the rule and reign of Christ, our flesh rages against it. Why? Because we want to be in charge. But if history has taught us anything, is that when we rule and reign, all we sow is death and destruction. These are the powers that vie for our attention. These are the powers that prevent us from giving our allegiance to Christ. And for some of us, we can identify exactly right now what powers are at work in us, vying for our allegiance. And Ben, why don't you come join me as I bring this thing to a close. See, this would be a pretty depressing message if I ended here. If I told you Jesus is calling for your allegiance, but you got all these powers working against you, so good luck. But the reason why it's the good news of God is because God, knowing our human frailty, knowing that we're enthralled by these powers, says, I'm going to enter into humanity's story and be the obedient servant they aren't. I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to be the suffering servant that humanity failed to be. I'm going to be the obedient Israel that Israel failed to be. I'm going to be the obedient Adam that Adam failed to be. I'm actually going to come and bend the knee myself. And see, it's Christ who takes on flesh, the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us, and it's actually him who is the obedient on our behalf so that by his spirit he can empower us to give our allegiance to the gospel. See, on our own, we are incapable of true allegiance to Christ. But because Christ entered into the humanity story, because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we are actually empowered to bend the knee and to give our all to Christ. See, the world, when it tries to offer us liberation, Christ comes into this picture, and through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus secures for us true liberation and freedom. See, when the powers try to convince us that they can offer us true life, Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, exposes the powers and principalities and the gilded cages they offer us. And when the flesh tries to assert its authority and say, I want to be God, Jesus, by his spirit, empowers us to rule and reign with him, showing us that to be truly human is to live according to his definition of good and evil. Christ, through his work, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, is the obedient human we've failed to be so that we might become the obedient sons and daughters we were destined to be. To believe is to bend the knee. 
to give our total lives, all of us, over to God as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto him as our spiritual act of worship. But that reality is made possible because Christ did it first. So what does that look like for us in our daily lives? I would love today to invite all of us to the allegiant life Christ calls us to or as I like to call it sometimes, the cruciform life. Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, he encourages the people listening that, guess what, if you want to sum up what the cruciform, the allegiant life looks like, it looks like this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. In other words, loving the Lord your God is this whole embodied self given over to God for his glory. He says this is the greatest and first commandment. And he says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus when he's calling us to this allegiant life, to this life dedicated unto him, wholly and completely, says the allegiant life, the cruciform life, looks like complete and total dedication to God, bending to knee to Christ as Savior and Lord. But it also has a horizontal dimension in which I bend the knee to the others I live around, whether they look like me, talk like me, act like me, think like me. They could even be my enemy. And yet the cruciform way of life is the bent knee. It's the getting low. It's following Christ's example and humbling ourselves even unto the point of death, giving our lives completely and totally to Christ. And so with that said, I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but I want the worship team first to lead us, in, lead us in a song, lead us in some worship, because Christ is calling us to bend the knee. He's calling for our allegiance. He's calling for our loyalty. He's calling us to give our whole lives unabashed, unashamed to him.